You're listening to a serialized podcast of Dead Air, a 12-episode recording of a book I wrote under the pen name J.J. Gould. For hardcover information on Dead Air or its companion novels, Dead Heat and Dead End, you may go to my website, ilikethatstory.net, or find them on Amazon. This uh, next episode is called A Wolf in Sheep's Clothing. It's the third in the series. If you are just joining us, you might want to double back and go to episode number one. Otherwise, uh, you can join me for this and stay tuned at the end of the chapters uh, 9 through 12. I'll talk a little bit about some of the characters and how they came to be. In the dying town of Dancing, South Dakota, salvation comes in the form of a rich retired basketball player who promises to build a gaming casino and hunter's paradise. The only person suspicious of his motives is a down-and-out reporter from the local radio station, and the only evidence he has is a garbled message recorded by accident by a scared and desperate heiress. Episode 3, A Wolf in sheep's clothing. Chapter 9. Stan. Stan was at the press conference listening to one of the TV casters, he couldn't tell them apart, finishing up a real softball, something about what he thought about South Dakota, and Dormeyer was laying it on thick. The sweeping plains, the grandeur, the whole bit. The guy was huge. Large hands lapped over the edge of the podium. The podium itself seemed undersized and frail, like Dormeyer could lift it like a shoebox. Stan had been standing politely, waiting for his chance. He glanced over at Hal from the Gazette, who was frowning at him. Well, he knew what the frown was about. When Stan had started in dancing about two years before, he did a story about the fire chief renting out apartments with no smoke detectors. Hal had pulled him aside after the story ran in the morning news and said, Hey, great story, man, I mean that. But listen, now you'll never get any news from the fire chief. Ever. This town is too small to piss off. Big news is too big. Keep the news small. Missing dogs, vandalism, school boards, city council meetings, maybe a crime after the arrest is made. Otherwise, you'll kill your sources. You understand? While he had explained it to Stan, he had the same frown in his face. Stan looked away and felt a small, stubborn anger, a contrariness that made his teeth clench a little. Maybe it was because he was hungover. Maybe it was because he was ashamed of himself. More likely it was because Stan just could not help himself. Obvious questions just had to be asked. They had to be. Excuse me, Mr. Dormeyer. The big door hunched over the podium, giving him a lopsided smile and a raised eyebrow. Does this make fiscal sense? Most of the crowd had heard about Stan's mourning by now. It was, after all, a small town. His questions seemed to puzzle him. Dormeyer seemed puzzled, too. What do you mean? Stan laid it out. We are two hours from the nearest interstate. The nearest airports to handle even small commercial are Sioux Falls, Pier, and Rapid City, all hundreds of miles away. 
The only gaming casinos that seem to do well nationwide are near population centers. We are not. And although hunting is a good revenue stream, it's only seasonal. Does this make fiscal sense? Expressions around him changed throughout his question. The dizzy looks of euphoria right after the media presentation were replaced with bemused humor, then quizzical glances, then open hostility. Dormeyer's expression had changed, too. His eyes focused in on Stan, standing downhill and about 15 feet away. People sitting next to Stan unconsciously leaned away from him. Who? Who are you? Dormeyer said it softly, but the menace was clear. A man sitting next to Stan actually shifted over one seat. Stanley Martin, KDAN 870. The woman with the glasses leaned over a little toward Dormeyer, murmuring, You're a radio reporter? Stan said nothing, holding his gaze. So, radio man, you own a business? You a businessman? No, I'm not. You, you a millionaire? This drew snickers from a few. Stan could feel the bottom of his right foot was wet from where the cracked sole had leaked melted snow through his shoe. No, I am not. Well, radio man, I am both. So, you know what that means? Stan knew better, but he could not have held back if he wanted to. Yes, Mr. Dormeyer, it means you have evaded my question by attacking me personally. Please explain why it makes fiscal sense to build a multi-million dollar resort in dancing. John Dormeyer's voice became soft again, and a small and dangerous smile appeared. Little man, I'd like to talk to you sometime, tell you some things about, about respect. Respect is important. The man with the sunglasses was suddenly at Dormeyer's elbow. The room was quiet for a full two seconds, every eye focused on the scene, before the woman with the eyeglasses cut in. As such it is, and always has been with visionary people. People laughed at Edison's light bulb, and at the Wright brothers, and skeptics will always question what they cannot see. She went on for a while, diffusing the tension, diverting the attention away. The press conference ended with the woman telling those gathered that the Dormeyer team would meet with prospective property sellers and investors in a nearby hotel suite throughout the remainder of the day, and a small group rushed to sign up for a time on a nearby clipboard. But others stayed in small knots to comment on the question and speculate on why dancing. The buzzing voices grew louder as people argued both sides of the issue. Stan was alone in the crowd with the vague but real sensation that he had stepped over some line. He was suddenly very tired. Now that the presentation was over, large mercury lights were buzzing overhead, bathing the room in stark mechanical light. Stan was tired, and his right foot was wet, and he was hungry. He couldn't do much about the other things, but maybe he would feel better if he ate something. Maybe he should get some breakfast. Y'all look like hell, MacGyver. Didn't you sleep? Stan shook his head. High-strung, unhappy, the military was not what they said it might be. 
Out of college with a degree in history and literature, Stan was doomed to either teach or try another major. He tried teaching, thinking maybe he could coach, but track coaches were not needed and only tolerated for those who could teach something, anything, and he had no ability in that line. It was an Army recruiter who had talked about the glory of sport and the privilege of serving his country, competing in armed forces track meets. The recruiter had not mentioned that between occasional track meets was senseless drilling, thick-headed officers, and for those who didn't say, yes, sir, right away, guard duty and KP. Stan could not relax. He felt trapped in a very large machine that made no sense. The irregular hours of guard duty made insomnia worse. The question came from a corporal from West Virginia, a freckled man named Burke with a hollow leg who saw him lying on his bunk red-eyed. Come on, let's get a couple of shots at the club. That'll quiet your mind. Stan hesitated. He did not care for the taste of alcohol, and memories of a father who drank soured him. Does, does that work? Burke laughed. <laughs> Every night. Chapter 10. Estelle. She wanted out. Those guys were nuts, especially Reese. He kept fidgeting, shifting his shoulders and arms like he was trying on a suit and combing his hair. After that, he'd look around, grinning to see if anyone had noticed. His taste in clothes was on the loud side, and the looks he gave her made her skin crawl. The other guy in the dark glasses, Robinson they called him, was almost worse. No expression probably some sort of ex-Special Forces dude that could kill with a paper clip. She'd worked for years in PR and had gotten used to strange clients with half-truths, but the three stooges here were a piece of work. She tried to keep a calm facade while Dormeyer went on his rant, pounding the limo's armrest until it broke. Who is that guy? That little son of a bitch is gonna ruin everything. Did you hear him? Did you hear him? Now she knew there was some sort of scam going on. She tried to smooth it over. You always get critics in the press. Everybody expects it, and nobody listens to them. It's nothing. Dormeyer glared at her. He wanted to hit her. She could tell. No wonder that poor wife of his looked like the walking dead. I'd drink, too, with that Neanderthal stomping around. The advice she'd given was good. Overreacting to unfavorable press often made things worse, but she was done giving advice to that moron. Shut up and look for a way out. Robinson was the one who finally said something. She's probably right. In any case, just use what you have to get what you want. Dormeyer looked at him. Like what? Robinson shrugged. Money? Dormeyer then looked at her. She shifted a little, uncomfortable under his gaze. Why did I take this job? Then she nodded. Yes, stories can go away with money being spent or not being spent in the right way. Dormeyer said nothing, waiting for her to continue. She sighed inwardly. Then, with Dormeyer glowering, Reese leering, and the special forces dude just... Looking, she penciled out a strategy that would bury the reporter in money. 
Greta was 18 at the end of the war, just another victim of the Fuhrer's vision of a Third Reich. Her mother had been killed first in an air raid. Her brother was killed next, somewhere on the Western Front. Her father remarried shortly after that happened, but then he was killed too, before the fall of Berlin. The Americans came, and at least food became more plentiful. She found the job serving meals to American soldiers. She kept her head down and wore loose clothing. All men were the same, no matter what uniform they wore. A new government was set up, and with it a new monetary system. Every German was to be given fifty marks. One night, after working her shift, her stepmother met her at the door with a suitcase of her belongings and her money. Take them and go. Before she could react, the door closed in her face, and she was alone. It might have been something to cry about, but she'd never cared for the woman, and there seemed no more room for tears after all the suffering. She took the streetcar back to work because that was the only thing she could think of to do. The officer's club was closed. She sat on her suitcase underneath the street lamp for an unknown period of time. She was still sitting there when she saw Jimmy for the first time. He was tall and lean, with a prominent jaw and eyes as serene as summer. Hello, Fraulein. His American accent was thick as molasses, his dress uniform a little short at the cuffs. He was a private, about the millionth American who had tried to make a play for her. There, under the streetlight, he got down on one knee and looked her in the eye. His face was without guile or pretense, and when she looked in his eyes, she knew right then that she was gone. I've been watching you, Fraulein, from over there across the street, and I believe with all my heart that you are the one for me. It was not that easy, but it was that certain, and nineteen months later she was with him in South Dakota, near a small town called Dancing, a newly minted war bride and U.S. citizen. She never looked back. Jimmy was what he was, a product of sunshine and wind. He had an easy, carefree manner and was always kind, his touch a healing balm to her war-sick soul. He taught her the ways of living in the strange land, taught her to shoot and cook what they shot. Their land was a patch of prairie indistinguishable from the countless other miles of prairie, but it was theirs. They were on the outskirts of town the way Jimmy liked it, and together they built a small house. She was eight months pregnant when the roof was finished, and as Jimmy was coming down the ladder, he slipped and fell wrong, broke his neck, and died. She lost the baby right then, too. Grief or shock or whatever. The sheriff and a man from town came out to help her move back home, they said. Get the hell off our land, was what she said back. They were taken aback and did not know what to do. She went and got the big Mauser Jimmy had brought back from Germany, a sniper rifle. He had taught her never to point it unless she meant business, and that day she surely did. I said, get the hell off our land. They said they'd come back, but they never did. They said she'd leave, but she never did that either. She stayed there, alone, with her grief and her memories. That was, my God, how long ago?
Jimmy and the baby were buried in the back by some lilacs she planted. She talked to Jimmy every day. He was still her strength and companion. It was Jimmy that helped her fight to get his small inheritance from some money-grubbing cousins. It was Jimmy that gave her the courage to get a job in town for a time, working as a waitress. And it was Jimmy and her who decided it was a good idea to lease some land to the radio station for a tower they wanted built. Now the radio station was another companion. Sign on the sign-off. The signal's so powerful you could sometimes hear the radio coming off a bread pan in the kitchen. She had news and weather and farm prices during the day and ball games and the stars at night. And Jimmy. She was the size of a gray-haired boy and about worn out. Yet Jimmy told her to wait and be patient. There were maybe one or two things left to do. And when they were done, they would be together. Chapter 11. Claire Claire glanced out the cafe window at the weather, a habit one developed early in life on the plains. Everything looked as though it had all changed, again. This time the wind had slipped back a few notches, the frayed flag flying over the post office. All flags in South Dakota are frayed. They last about two months before beating themselves to death in the wind. It was rippling about ten miles an hour, and the sun was out. Puddles had already started forming in the street, and by mid-afternoon the snow would be melted. The talk around her was weather talk. It always was. This time a rancher was holding a mug of coffee, shaking dice, and telling other ranchers how certain he was about an early spring thaw. A few hours before, the morning rush had talked about a blizzard. <laughs> that was how fast weather changed. The bell over the door rang, and she saw Stan slip into his usual spot, coming in after a couple of ranchers, the way he always did. She spotted him right away and hid a smile. She wasn't sure why he didn't like opening the door himself. Maybe he didn't like the attention the bell drew when the door hit it. He was a peculiar man, different from what she was used to seeing, but in an appealing kind of way. He was not a big man, nor well-dressed or outgoing. He had kind of a compressed quality, which some people with a lot of energy had, and a rare direct gaze, like a flash of light reflected off a lake or ocean. She resisted the temptation to brush the hair behind her ear, but could not resist smoothing her apron. Silly. No man she'd ever known had been anything but trouble. The last one had tried to kill her. He'd been nice enough to marry, but after the arrangement started showing a mean side, that was ten years before, she still had a small scar above her right eyebrow and more than a few inside. Men were trouble. But still... He slipped onto a stool at the end of the counter by the pie safe. He was poor, anyone could see that, with frayed cuffs and a collar and wrinkled tie. He counted his money carefully, as though he knew how little he had, but was recounting it to make sure. She wasn't sure, but she felt like he hadn't always been poor. He caught her watching. Their eyes met before he quickly glanced away. He kind of reminded her of a stray dog she found as a kid, skinny, run-down, with bottomless eyes. She held up a glass carafe. Coffee? He nodded. 
She knew his name. They lived in dancing, after all, and the fellow from the radio was a popular topic. Whenever he left, there was plenty to be talked about because he was not from here. And he must have known her name, at least the name she went by, because it was on her name tag and because it was shouted about every three minutes during the rush. But they had never introduced themselves, so they continued an anonymous dance that would not amount to anything. She poured the last of the coffee into a mug, slipped it onto the worn countertop in front of him, turned, and set up the bun for another pot. A dog-eared menu was in front of him, but they both knew what he would order. The cheapest thing on the menu was the biscuits and gravy, a buck eighty. Truth was, she was aching to feed him as much as he could hold, but that would not do. He never had more than a few dollars. <clears throat> I, uh, I think I'll have the biscuits and gravy, please, he said after a bit. His voice was deep and resonant, a voice that did not fit the skin and bones of his frame, but somehow did fit those eyes, blue, sometimes gray, today bloodshot. Men are trouble. But, like a moth to flame, she seemed drawn to this one. She tried something. Casually, she put three biscuits on his plate instead of two, and ladled on too much sausage gravy. In a non-committal voice, she stated that the breakfast rush was over, and since lunchtime was coming on, she didn't want to have to throw the gravy away. He paused and looked at the heaping plate suspiciously. She looked at him guilelessly. Well, how much would this be? Offhandedly, she said, Same price, no difference. The damn starving fool was pondering his pride while she pretended not to notice. His voice was still formal, like a business agreement. <clears throat> Very well, then. He set a paper napkin on his lap and with impeccably neat manners and movements started eating quickly and efficiently. That was the best part. Being a waitress was tough and menial and the tips were small and the hours long and the feet tired, but she found satisfaction, great satisfaction, in watching a hungry man eat, especially that man. She had others to tend to, but not a lot. She gave him his space bringing him fresh coffee when his mug was empty, tending him carefully like that stray dog from her youth. The plate was empty, wiped clean. With careful movements, he wiped the counter clean of non-existent spills, set his mug on the plate with the flatware and the napkin on top. He stood and said formally, Thank you. It uh, was delicious. You're more than welcome. Again, she fought the ridiculous urge to sweep some hair behind her ear. Then he slipped out, that time with a truck driver. Next to his plate was a small pile of coins. She did not have to count it to know that it would be 20% of the tab. Chapter 12. Reese all Reese knew was this was supposed to be fun, but it was not. He came with on a lark. He liked westerns as a kid and thought it might be like a movie. He felt stupid, having thought there might be cowboys and Indians and schoolmarms and whorehouses, but this town, what was the name of it again? 
was just cold and windy and flat and boring. He combed his hair again, flexed his shoulders, and flashed a grin. He had a lot of grins, and he practiced them throughout his day. The current one was the don't-mess-with-me grin. He wasn't doing it for anyone but himself, but the PR chick with the glasses must have thought it was for her, and she looked nervous. She had been giving them some ideas about getting rid of the radio guy, and a lot of them made sense. She looked good, if you like that artsy corporate type. Maybe he could have some fun. The two of them had been told to find a realtor office and book some properties to view, but the realtor was gone, and the office was unlocked, dusty, and cold, and he was bored, bored, bored. Hey, he said, standing closer. She looked scared, so he used another grin that suggested that she should be. Again, not his type, but it might be kind of fun to see what she'd look like if she was more respectful. How come you don't like me? He asked, too close. He blew on her face and grinned. Behind the glare and blank face, he could see a flash of fear in her eyes. That was better. She was probably a fighter, but that was okay, too. The door opened behind him with a rattle and a gust of cold wind. Hey there, folks. I'm Clyde Reams. How can I be of service today? He was out of breath, and his gold realtor jacket had some folds in it, as though it didn't get worn much. I'll be right back. She was smart, too. Taking advantage of the interruption, she whisked right out the door, passed the realtor, and got into the limo. The driver wasn't there, but the keys were. A moment later, it revved down the street as though she had no intention of coming back, which she didn't. She did not answer any more phone calls or collect the remainder of her fee. Dormeyer got pissed, of course, but Reese stuck with his smile and his story until it blew over. After all, there were a lot more important things to be done in the next few days. Okay, so that was episode three, A Wolf in Sheep's Clothing. Um, sometimes people write books differently. I've heard different authors talk about um, scripting it out, outlines. I, I don't do it that way. I start with the characters, and the characters have to feel like real people to me. And the characters in my books often are combinations of real people or mannerisms of real people that I add to fictitious characters. I like to have a good hero. And as you can tell right now that our hero of this story is Stan. I like him because he, to me, is sort of a David character. He's small, often overlooked. He has a flaw, his drinking. But there are seeds of greatness that I really want to see expanded in this story. I think a good story has an arc and has character movement. And I like to see where Stan will end up. A story also needs some good villains. You've met them. We have uh, Dormeyer, who is, you know, 100% uh, ruthless, uh, taken from uh, some bad people that I've observed. Uh, I, I like to write a book, and I like the villains to be 100% villains. There is no doubt which side they are on. Reese is sort of a human hyena. I write him that way. Uh, Robinson is a neutral character, just bad uh, choices in life, and he has decided to saddle himself with uh, some bad people, and we'll, we'll see what happens to him. Uh, the other characters are interesting. You've met already Greta. She's one of my favorites. We'll talk about her more. 
Uh, she is the widow who lives out by the uh, tower, and we will meet other characters as we go. As you've noticed, I do not spend a lot of time describing my characters. Uh, I think that just a note here or there. We know that uh, Stan is smaller than average size uh, and has blue eyes and has a certain presence that gives him an aura of, uh, of, um, of something deeper. Uh, other than that, we must figure out who he is by how other people describe him. And that is the reason I chose this writing style, among other things. Each chapter is a separate person who describes the world from their vantage point, and that by the time our story is done, we get sort of um, a composite idea of the way people are. And I just, I just like that uh, thought, and that's, that's the way I write my fiction stuff. So that is uh, number, uh, episode number three. We'll be back uh, next week with our fourth episode. And I want to thank you very much for listening to this. Again, the name of the book is Dead Air. You can get that on Amazon if you want the hard copy. And if you want the other short stories we have, it's uh, on our podcast, I Like That Story. Those stories come out every Monday. These books, uh, uh, chapters, come out every Friday. So we'll see you next week. God bless. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.